This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to speak with investigative journalist Lisa Pease as a follow-up to our previous conversation about Robert Kennedy. The movie by Emilio Estevez called Bobby is now in theaters. Where We have not seen it yet. We're keen to do so, but Lisa has. In fact, Lisa is in the movie as an extra, and rest assured she's going to have a few things to say about this. By way of reminder, we would... Uh, Refresh your memory, dear listener, that uh, in June of 2003, Mr. McMillan and I traveled down to commemorate the 35th anniversary of the passing of Robert Kennedy, who was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel shortly after winning the California primary in 1968. In that race, he narrowly edged out Eugene McCarthy, who we were privileged to have spoken with about uh, about the campaign in 1968 on this program. Lisa, myself, and Mr. McMillan traveled over to the Ambassador Hotel and were able to, uh, to view many of the important locations in that, uh, that famous hotel, such as the Coconut Grove Ballroom and the back steps that led to the pantry where the actual assassination of Robert Kennedy took place. Uh, try as we might, we were not able to finagle access to the pantry area. Well, we'll talk about that and other things here in segment two. Let's commence this program as we like to do with on this date in history, which is November 30th. In the year 1609, the true face of the moon was first seen by Galileo Galilei in Padua, Italy, as he turned his telescope toward it for the first time and made a drawing to record his discovery. Galileo's revolutionary treatise, Starry Messenger, which appeared the following March, showed an astonished public that the moon was a world, a cratered world, a new land to be explored. I was reminded of Galileo when I was down in San Jose a couple of weeks ago, and a good friend of mine uh, was discussing his two boys, uh, now enrolled in Bellarmine High School. Bellarmine is run by the Jesuits and is well known for its uh, high level of scholarship. It is also named after Cardinal Roberto Bellarmino, who was the man who put Galileo on trial for the Catholic Church. Yay. Now, actually, we, we don't think that was really a good idea. To quote from Wikipedia, in 1612, opposition arose in the church to the Copernican theories, which Galileo supported. In 1614, from the pulpit of Santa Maria Novella, Father Tommaso Caccini denounced Galileo's opinions on the motions of the earth, judging them dangerous and close to heresy. Galileo went to Rome to defend himself against these accusations, but in 1616, Cardinal Bellarmino personally handed Galileo an admonition enjoining him to neither advocate nor teach Copernican astronomy as religious doctrine. The question we ask at Radio Parallax is, <laughs> couldn't they have thought of a different guy to name the high school after down in San Jose in the middle of the 19th century? Of course, we would note that uh, a guy we admire very much, uh, Bernie Ward, uh, a firebrand over there at KGO Radio. I believe uh, he's on five nights a week and also does God Talk on Sunday morning. Uh, Bernie Ward used to teach down at Bellarmine High School. And... Uh, 
many moons ago when I was about, I don't know, 23 years of age, finishing up my studies here at this great institution at UC Davis. I did note that my roommate, who I'd gone to high school with, had for his first two years attended Bellarmine. One day when I was puttering around the house over at uh, 2nd and C Streets here in downtown Davis, there was a knock on the door. Pleasant-looking fellow popped his head in and asked if my roommate was around, and I said, no, he wasn't. He said, oh, well, just tell him Riley dropped by. When my roommate came home, I said, oh, a fellow came by to see you. You weren't here. His, his name was Riley. My roommate looked at me and says, uh, you know who that guy is? I said, well, no. He said, oh, Riley Bechtel. His dad's president of the Bechtel Corporation. I was kind of curious when I saw Greg Pallast's list of 52 major players in American politics, which came out a couple years back, to see that Riley Bechtel merited a card of his own. I sure wish back in the 70s I would have invited him in to have a beer and we could have chatted a bit. Uh, would have been interesting. But alas, all I can say is, uh, seemed like a nice fella. On November 30th in 1872, and I'm afraid I can't resist this one, the world's first international soccer match was played at Hamilton Crescent in Glasgow between Scotland and England. The match was a goalless draw. And I'm sure that somewhere out there in Radio Land, Paul Dorn, you're waiting for me to say something now, aren't you? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. Aww. And on November 30th in 1954, the first modern instance of a meteorite striking a human being occurred at Sylacaqua, Alabama, when a meteorite crashed through the roof of a house, bounced off a radio, and struck Elizabeth Hodges sleeping on a couch. <laughs> the impact gave her a rather nasty bruise on the hip, but she was not permanently injured. Ancient Chinese records tell of people being injured or killed by falling meteorites, but the Silicagua meteorite provided the first modern record of this type of human injury. And finally on this date, November 30th in 1956, in the United States, Douglas Edwards and the News makes the first use of videotape on television. And again, that was Douglas Edwards, not Douglas Everett. There, people have confused us in the past. Our statistic of the day comes from the Washington Post that noted this year, for the first time in the 25-year history of Forbes magazine's annual list of the 400 richest Americans, everyone on the list is a billionaire. Our quip of the day comes from Andy Borowitz. This was sent to us by our good friend Gary Chu. According to Borowitz, in a nationally televised speech from the White House, President George W. Bush warned North Korean President Kim Jong-il that he is prepared to back up his tough talk on North Korea's nuclear program with even tougher talk. After Kim tested his nation's first nuclear device, many in diplomatic circles wondered if Bush would retaliate with more than strong words. But today's speech left little doubt on that score, as the U.S. president said he was, quote, prepared to strike back with the strongest words ever, unquote. To Mr. Kim Jong-il, let me say this, Mr. Bush said, abandon your nuclear program at once, or you'll face the full fury of the United States of America's harshest rhetoric. 
And we can't resist picking up where we left off last week from uh, the Mother Jones article titled, What's in a Name? We have the following. To alter the state's wintry image, North Dakota legislators have considered dropping the word North four times. Which, you gotta admit, is pretty silly. You'd have Dakota and South Dakota. And no, the example of Mongolia and Outer Mongolia is not a good one. Outer Mongolia is a province of China. And although Mr. McMillan brings up the issue of Virginia versus West Virginia, we'd remind you that West Virginia split off because Unionists decided they didn't want to secede from the Union in about 1862 or 3, I forget which. But his point is well taken. You could have a West Virginia and no East Virginia, just Virginia. And we would point out that to reform its crime-ridden reputation in 2003, South Central L.A. was officially renamed South L.A. And in other news from North Dakota, which is not a phrase we, we use often, a $100 million gift from a University of North Dakota alumnus is dependent on the school defying an NCAA ban on racist mascots and keeping the fighting Sioux. I got a pretty good feeling they're going to remain the fighting Sioux for some time. Here's an item we like. In 2005, McDonald's offered rap stars $5 every time one of their songs mentions a Big Mac was played on the radio. And evidently, the nation of Malaysia prohibits naming a child after an insect, fruit, or vegetable and also bans undesirable names such as Smelly Dog and Hitler. No, we're not sure how many Malaysians were champing at the bit to name their offspring either Smelly Dog or Hitler, but, well, they can't because it's forbidden. And, you know, we're not sure that isn't a sensible regulation. Might have kept Frank Zappa from naming his kids Dweezil and Moon Unit. And final surprising item... Prince Charles, it said, may change his name to George when he's crowned king due to the associations of Charles I and Charles II. And if you're a little rusty in your British history, we remind you that Charles I was deposed and executed by the Puritans. As it turned out, uh, after abolishing the monarchy, England and later Scotland and Ireland became a united republic under Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan army. After the British got tired of the Puritans, they pretty much threw him out and restored the monarchy with Charles II. Charles II fought with Parliament quite a bit and finally dispensed with it and ruled alone. Here's another reason that uh, Prince Charles may dispense with uh, his name when he becomes king. According to Wikipedia, Charles II famously fathered numerous illegitimate children, of whom he acknowledged 14 Since no legitimate children lived, uh, they wound up making uh, his uh, brother, James, James II, uh, king, but he was a secret Catholic, and they threw him out. They brought in William and Mary from the Netherlands. It's a hell of a soap opera that we ought to tell someday on this this show. We ought to to delve into this whole matter of what happened in the 1600s in the the UK. By God, we're going to put that on our to-do list, Mr. McMillan. But anyway, (laughs) back to the start. Prince Charles is reluctant to go with the name Charles III. And we think we can see why. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly.
According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for octogenarians. After German inventors un- unveiled the eye stick, an intelligent walking stick that automatically calls an ambulance if its owner falls over. I guess they've done the life alert, I've fallen and I can't get up one better. The magazine also noted that uh, last week was a bad week for corporate speak. After a survey of office workers found that the use of management jargon by bosses lowers employee morale. Workers said they were particularly depressed by the terms getting one's ducks in a row and thinking outside the box. My personal favorite among managerial jackasses was after they'd screw up, they would suggest that the, uh, the workforce would then have to really step up to the plate to help fix what they were ruining. But it appears that by any standards, last week was an ugly week for the Secret Service. After a thief snuck up behind first daughter Barbara Bush and stole her purse and cell phone while she ate at a restaurant in Argentina. Secret Service agents were only yards away, yet apparently saw nothing. Then again, having been pickpocketed in Buenos Aires, I would say those Argentinians are pretty good. Heck, might have been the same guy. Anyway, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, we're having so much fun in this segment, let's just do more fun stuff that's been piling up. We were really uh, quite tickled by the article in Mental Floss magazine about uh, the future according to four prophets who mostly got it wrong. My two favorites are, first of all, Gene Dixon. And well, let me just quote from Mental Floss. Astrologer to the Reagans, Dixon wrote copiously, Our favorite work is her horoscope book for dogs. She made hundreds of predictions in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What she got right? Dixon was most famous for foreseeing JFK's assassination. Sort of. In 1956, she said a Democrat would win the 1960 election and die in office. This appears to be rather more than balanced off by what she got wrong, which included... Predicting World War III in 1958, (laughs) the cure for cancer in 1967, and peace on Earth by the year 2000. And on further inspection, it it doesn't appear that she actually thought uh, the Democrat that would die in office would be JFK, because four years after initial prediction, in the heat of the presidential race, Dixon said Kennedy would lose. But we think that Gene Dixon was outdone by the amazing Criswell. If you've ever seen the movie Plan 9 from Outer Space, (laughs) you've seen Criswell because he opens the movie. And I believe he also uh, made an appearance in the the, uh, Johnny Depp movie Ed Wood about uh, the celebrated director of Plan 9 from Outer Space. He and uh, Ed Wood were pretty good pals. But anyway, back in 1963, The Amazing Criswell appeared on the Jack Parr program. This is in March and predicted that something bad would happen to President John F. Kennedy that November. And, of course, it did. On the other hand, Quiswell predicted that, A, a space ray would strike Denver, Colorado, and cause all metal to act like rubber. B, 
Brain transplants would be sold in vending machines. C. Mass cannibalism would break out in August 1999. And my personal favorite, that Mae West would be elected president of the United States. And she would celebrate by taking her good friends Liberace and Criswell on a quick jaunt to the moon. And from an article titled Scatterbrain in the very same issue of Mental Floss, we noted this item, which has to come from the oddball file. The the article was about pitching professionally while under the influence of drugs. Talked about Doc Ellis, by all accounts a pretty eccentric baseball player. Doc Ellis now claims he never played a major league game sober. On May 1st, 1974, for instance, Ellis attempted to hit every batter in the Cincinnati Reds lineup. According to the magazine, in the first inning alone, he pelted Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, and Dan Dreesen. Tony Perez evidently managed to dodge four pitches and walked. However, after Johnny Bench was nearly beaned twice, Ellis was removed from the game. But the magazine notes that by far, Doc Ellis's oddest accomplishment came on June 12, 1970, when, per his autobiography, he became the only major league player ever to pitch a complete game no-hitter while tripping on acid. The magazine notes that luckily, Ellis sobered up after his retirement, and he now works as a drug treatment counselor. And our final piece from the sports oddball file is as follows. The National Football League has asked teams to stop playing Rock and Roll Part 2 now that singer-songwriter Gary Glitter is serving three years in a Vietnamese prison for child molestation. Several NFL teams have found substitutes for the one-word anthem. (laughs) Na-na-na-na-na. Hey. (laughs) Including the 1812 Overture and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy's Go Daddy-O. But when the Kansas City Chiefs asked fans to vote for a replacement, they were flooded with emails demanding that the team keep the original. The Chiefs will now use a nearly identical-sounding cover version of Glitter's song performed by the Tube Tops. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more.